Well, good morning. Did you miss me? Oh, you didn't have to say that just because I put you on the spot, but I missed you. I had so much fun going around to these other churches, and I think, did you have fun hearing from these other pastors these last few weeks, those of you who were here? Yeah. I told them you would be, but they were like, they're so kind. They were so kind to us. That's what all of them said, and so thank you for just being there and being there for that. Um, I, listen, I, there's a lot more to talk about with this idea, and we're going to do some more stuff hopefully in the future that uh, we kind of work together as churches. But I will just say this. There are so many voices in Christianity right now that are shouting about how we should all be so scared. You know, people watering down the gospel, walking away from the church, you know, everything is, the sky is falling. We all need to chill out. I mean, gosh, this is just one man's opinion from visiting a couple of other churches, but the kingdom of God is just fine right? Like people are faithful and they're trying and they're walking it out every single day. And I was so encouraged and so blessed by what I saw in these churches. So I think we should feel really confident just about what God does. You know, I mean, this is the thing about the kingdom of God, right? It gets bad. And we're like, oh no, what's happening? And then the God works and it gets better again, right? That's been the story for 2000 years. And that's the story in our life too. So just, we should chill out. All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, that has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about today. We're going to be at Acts 3. We're going to get back to chapter uh, 3 of Acts. Um, I want to ask you a question and tell you a story, and then we'll dive into the scripture. So here's my question. This is a rhetorical question. Answer in your head, not out loud. Does God still do miraculous healings? Does God still do miraculous healings? You could ask, did he ever do them? But if we stipulate for a minute uh, that everything in the Bible is accurate and is truthful, do miraculous healings like what we read about in the New Testament still happen today? Think about that. We're going to come back to that question in a little bit here. I'm going to tell you a story from one of these churches, and I'm going to keep the church and the people involved anonymous for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, I got to meet a woman named Claire at one of these churches walking around with the pastor before church and this woman comes up to us and she was helping out with some ministry stuff and she was talking to this pastor about hey I could do this sort of thing or what if I did this and it kind of expanding some ministry things and then she walks away and the pastor says I got to tell you her story and he proceeds to tell me this story he said Claire started attending their church a couple years ago uh, she was obviously homeless and would come in and just kind of sit in the back of their church. And he said she would wear like eight layers of clothing and she would have a hood pulled up over her head and was basically non-responsive to anyone who tried to talk to her. And she'd just sit in the back of the church. Um, so it was obviously, or not obviously, but speculating probably some mental health stuff happening with Claire. Uh, and there was... A, you know, to put it delicately, it just a, an overpowering odor um, that Claire had. And it was so strong, this pastor said, you could see kind of like a, a visible ring of seats around Claire because nobody wanted to get close enough uh, because it was such a strong smell. But she starts showing up every single week. What do you do? Well, this uh, pastor, his team, they decided what they were going to do is protect her. Try every week to get past her walls, care on her, uh, or care for her and love on her. Um, you know, though, what's always true about the love of Jesus 
So when you try to live out the love of Jesus, it costs you something, and that was true with this pastor. He started to hear complaints. One day, Claire came in, and she sat right next to a family with kids, um, and they complained. They said, this is too much. It's just too much for our kids to be around us. And it would, like, if this is going to continue, you're not going to do anything about it. We might have to go to another church. And I was so proud of this pastor. He pulled this family aside, and he said, listen, I want you to understand this. There are hundreds of churches in this town that if your sweet nuclear family walked into the back of that church and said, hey, we want to go to church here, they would be so happy to have you. We might be the only church that's happy to have Claire. Instead of leaving here, would you consider loving her and just staying? Um, and of course, they did not want to consider that, and they left anyway. And he's telling me that story, and I'm like, man, I know that pain. People leave churches all the time because you just, you're like, would you be like Jesus? And they're like, no. <laughs> um, but I also was wondering what he said about those churches. I wonder, I wonder how we would respond at Pulpit Rock if Claire was sitting here. I just wonder. Um, so they're trying every week to reach her, about eight months. Uh, just trying to talk to her every week, trying to make her safe, make her feel safe. Um, eventually, a retired army nurse who had been trying for weeks to, to speak with her, finally got through to Claire. And this army nurse, uh, she said to her something to this effect. She said, listen, if you want to take a shower and get cleaned up, um, I want you to know I will stand at the door and I will guard it with my life. You know, I will make sure that no one messes with you. You'll be totally safe. You'll have as much time as you need uh, just to, to get yourself together. Um, somehow that kind of got through to Claire, and Claire agrees. And so she goes and she takes a shower, gets cleaned up, put on a new one set of clothes. Um, and after that Sunday, disappeared. They didn't see her for a year. Now, we'll come back to that story in a second, but I want to go back to the question that I asked, does God still miraculously heal people? It's relevant, right? If ever there was a time for a miraculous healing, it is... Claire, right? Like this would be the situation. This would be the case. That she clearly has some sort of mental health stuff happening there, so has experienced some trauma. She's somehow going to God's people for some help. Wouldn't it be great if we had the ability to lay hands on her and just instantly fix whatever it is that's going on there? What we're going to read in Acts 3 is a story where that exact thing happens. Something is instantly, miraculously healed. And when I read it, I thought of Claire, and I thought of all the Claires that I've met in my life, all the people that I've thought, God, would you please just, I know you have the power, could you just do it and heal what's happening there? So I want us to think about those two stories together, and it might lead us to some important questions and maybe some even more important conclusions. Uh, so Acts 3 we're going to read the whole chapter and just stop in a few places for some commentary. Here's what it says. Verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Pause right there. 
Left off chapter 2, right? Chapter 2, early uh, group of believers, around 3,000 plus. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they're doing good, right? This is a thing. This has legs. It's going to actually happen. The church is happening. Now, chapter 3 is about to launch this thing into a whole different stratosphere. It's going to change from just this sweet little community of Jesus followers to kind of a worldwide movement. And that really, that shift starts in chapter 3. I also want you to notice this. Uh, What are they going up to the temple to do? To pray, right? I mean, you see that too, right? Did I read that part? Okay. Um, They're going up there to pray. And I I bring this up just because I don't, like, I'm I'm being honest. This isn't a trick. I I genuinely don't know what to do with this yet, but I think the Holy Spirit is stirring something in me about this. Prayer was so central to the movement of God in the early church. We find a reference to prayer in almost every story in Acts, on every single page. And uh, this is just my opinion. As a church, Pulper Rock, I say this with nothing but affection for you in my heart, and uh, I know I'm a part of this and part of the problem too. I don't know if we're very good at prayer here at Pulper Rock. I don't know if we are. Like certainly not comparatively to what I'm reading in Acts. And the more I study the Acts, the more deeply disturbed I am by that. We have so many wonderful qualities as a church, and there's stuff on every page of Acts that I read, and I'm like, hey, we do that. I love that we do that. Um, But I don't know if anyone would look at us and say, that's a real prayer-centric church. Um, I don't totally know what to do about that because I see how prayer drove the movement of God and acts. And I look at us and I'm like, man, there's a lot of movement of God stuff, but sometimes we don't actually gather and spend a lot of time praying. And I was telling this to our elders. One of them said, well, maybe you should pray about it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a second. Let's pray. Uh, God... We come to you and just recognize that there was something about our forefathers and foremothers that was uh, very prayer-centered. God, would you help us to know what that means for us, what that means in our rhythms and our relationships with one another? Um, reveal it, Lord. Amen. Verse 2. Now, man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Now, we could be real cynical about this and be like, well, this is a business decision. You ask the people at church for money. But I, I think there's also something else happening here. I, like, I think this is true. Uh, it may have some ulterior motive to it, but sometimes when someone is in dire circumstances, they're just kind of drawn to the people of God, hoping to find their help and grace. I think that's probably true of this man. It certainly was true, I think, in Claire's life. So let's look at what happens. Verse 4, Peter looks straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Here's an observation. I think it's important. You cannot really help someone without contact, right? 
We see this in Jesus' life. We see this now in the early church. There was like a lot of touching going on with Jesus. Like there was a a dignity conveyed by the way that he touched people that nobody else would touch. Or in this case, the way that the disciples looked at someone that nobody else would look at. Imagine how many people a day walked by this guy without making eye contact, you know? In the ancient world... uh, you know, it wasn't like our world. This, the poor and the rich kind of overlapped in the cities in the ancient world. Like we've invented suburbs to change all that so that if we're middle class or rich in America, like we don't even have to look at poor people, right? That wasn't how it was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, like there's a lot more overlap, but the overlap wasn't necessarily positive. And in fact, many of the worldviews in the ancient world were that if you were poor, it was because you had done something to deserve it. Right? Or if you were sick, it's because you'd done something to deserve it. And so think of all the people that just kind of would walk by this man, purposefully not looking at him. Peter goes the opposite direction. Peter wants him to see what's coming. So he's like, look at us. And then uh, this scene, Luke writes, it reads like a movie script. It's such an amazing scene. Listen to this, verse 6. Then Peter said... Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. Instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him. So they did see this guy, right? They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Such a cool moment. Um, I, I just want us to appreciate, like, this is like a mic drop sort of line. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. I mean, like, that. what a scene, right? What I love is this guy, he doesn't just start walking what does he start doing? He's jumping. And I, like, you think about how many times he saw people walking past him with like healthy legs. And I, like, I can't prove it, but I, I bet he was thinking to himself, man, they don't, they're not even using them right. If I had legs like that, man, I'd see what those things could do. And then his legs get fixed and he's like, let's go. And he's jumping. It's this beautiful response. Um, and of course, it creates an opportunity. People are like, what in the world just happened? So Peter steps up. He's ready. He's delivering sermon number two in the book of Acts, verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead and were witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. As you can now see. Um, So Peter still (laughs) 
This is not the kinder, gentler Peter just yet. He still has some things to work out, right? But let me make an observation, though. There is a big change in Peter, and I think this is what we're seeing there. Uh, I just want to observe this. I want to observe it every time we see it. Healthy power deconstructs itself. That's what healthy power does. Peter is not in any way interested in taking credit for this. In fact, he seems worried that people would associate this with him and John. He's like, no, 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 this has nothing to do with us. It was all Jesus. That's what healthy power sounds like. Do you want to know what sort of influencers or leaders to listen to in your life? Listen to the voices that are not trying to convince you of what they know or what they can do, but they're trying to convince you of what Jesus can do. Those are the leaders to listen to. Sometimes we get this backwards in the church, and we give a lot of influence and authority to people who are really good at drawing a crowd, and that's not actually the job, right? The job is to point to Jesus. Let me say something. It's not the point of the sermon, but I just want to bring it up. Uh, something that nobody will tell you about Christian leadership or spiritual authority. Um, here's what you need to know about every person who seeks to lead others in the faith realm. Every person who says yes to leading others spiritually says yes for the wrong reasons. Now, they're not entirely the wrong reasons, but they're certainly not entirely pure reasons. It's not just the benevolence in their heart. And that was true about Peter originally. If you remember, you read the Gospels, you see a different man than you see here. Peter steps into leadership with Jesus and he's like prideful and he's quick-tempered and he's like, it's almost like this spiritual leadership thing that he says yes to is this grab at this worth that he felt like he didn't have and he wanted to find by partnering with Jesus in leadership. And I'm telling you, as a Christian leader, I've, I've been a Christian leader for 27 years. I have served with more Christian leaders than I can count. If you are the sort of person who says yes to telling other humans what God wants for them, there is something wrong with you. Absolutely. There's also some good stuff about you, but there is definitely always something also wrong with you. That's true of all spiritual leadership. There's a dark, prideful, insecure, broken reason that you say yes to spiritual authority. It was true of Peter. It is true of me. It is true of every Christian leader that you've ever met. And so this is the scenario that we find ourselves in. There are only two types of Christian leaders in the world. There are Christian leaders who do not know their own brokenness. And they've deceived themselves into thinking that it's just because of their calling and the goodness in their heart that they've said yes to this thing. And I will tell you, those leaders are dangerous and they will hurt you even if you follow them out of the goodness of your heart. And then you have leaders like Peter who have come to the end of themselves, faced their own brokenness, realized how much ugly pride is in them, and allowed God to redeem it in some way so that they're able to lead others in a way that says, this has nothing to do with me. It has to do with Jesus. He is our only hope, not me. That's what good spiritual authority sounds like. It deconstructs its own power. Um, but back to the point of the sermon, um, we also need to observe in this sermon, Peter's a little salty still, right? You remember uh, Sermon 1. I mean, it's not about him, and he's a healthier spiritual leader, but he still is angry. Sermon 1, he was blaming everyone for killing Jesus. Here's Sermon 2. He's picking up where he left off, right? Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, 
I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send his Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus, heaven's Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Now notice again, uh, second sermon, he's still preaching on the same topic. The, the topic of the early church was the person of Jesus Christ. Everything hung upon that. Who is Jesus and what did his death and his resurrection accomplish? That's what he's talking about. He's also pointing this out. Even though it's all of your faults, you know, he, he says to his listeners, the suffering of Jesus was part of God's plan. It was part of his plan to restore all things. And he says, if you would just turn to God, your sins would be wiped out. And then he said, times of refreshing would come. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? What a beautiful way to describe what it means to walk with Jesus. It is a time of refreshing. He closes with this, verse 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, we're going to stop there. We're going to look next week at the impact of the sermon because that's a whole other thing. Uh, but I just want to observe this. What he's basically saying to all of these Israelites is Jesus is really the culmination of your history. He is the piece that makes the rest of this story going all the way back to Moses, to Abraham. He makes it all make sense once you see Jesus. And he's speaking to this group that has like such a rich cultural, historical identity. These stories, they would tell him every year. And he's saying all of that history that we share, it was really actually about Jesus. And if you see that, all the rest will start to fall into place. Now, it's fun to think about that on the historical perspective, but I also think there's an aspect of the story that points to the personal part of this. That it, he, Jesus is also the culmination of our personal history. Like when you look back at your life, do you see how there has been like a thread? And it may not have always been evident to you, but looking back, you can see how there's always been this thread of grace or like this presence in your life, like nudging you towards mercy and love and, and uh, grace. That's God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's something about it when we see it historically that he's been there for every day of our history, even those very, very dark days. Think about this beggar that Peter just healed. How many like demoralizing, horrible days must this man have lived through? And then there's this moment where Jesus enters his story. And at that moment, suddenly all of those days have purpose. 
It doesn't mean they were easy, but they all suddenly have purpose because of Jesus' presence in his life. That was true of the nation of Israel too. They had a, a really checkered past. They had a hard history with God. And when Jesus entered the story, suddenly it all clicks into place and you see the purpose of it. But it's true for us too. We are that beggar, you know? And our lives have been building to this moment that we encounter Jesus and suddenly the struggle in our lives has purpose to it. It makes sense in a way that it didn't before. And when you see it, it's just enough to make you want to jump, you know? So let's go back to our question about miraculous healing. Uh, Does Jesus still heal people like this? Like he heals this lame beggar. Does Jesus still heal people like Claire? Well, let's define maybe what we mean by miracle. Um, If we're talking about miraculous healing, what's a miracle in the first place? A miracle is simply this. A miracle is a moment in time when God chooses to, by his power, violate the natural laws that govern reality. That's what a miracle is. It's when something natural is violated. Uh, So part of our kind of biblical worldview is this idea that God created a universe with predictable, reliable laws, like there are laws of nature, right? This is incidentally why the sciences emerge in Christianity, not in some other worldview concepts, because for science to emerge, you have to have this concept of the immutable laws of the universe that do not change. They're unchanging just like God is unchanging, and in that context, you might actually start to be curious, hey, could we study these? Is there ways that we could understand them a little bit better? And that's exactly what happened. And now everyone wants to pit science and religion against each other. But we have to understand Christianity and science, they, like they, they grew up together, right? Because they, they, like these two concepts go hand in hand. And that's why you see, we don't have time to get into this, but if you study other cultures' history, cultures that were a little bit more fatalistic or cultures that really just believed everything was the will of God or everything was because of the spirits, Uh, They didn't really have this kind of concept of scientific inquiry because you have to have reliable, immutable laws of nature to study in order for the sciences to develop. And they did. So according to the laws of nature, like a a man who has a condition that has prevented him from walking his entire life cannot instantly be cured of that condition, right? Those are the laws of nature. That's how it works. And so when Jesus intervenes, And he violates the laws of nature that he created, and this man suddenly is able to walk. That's a miracle. That's why we call it a miracle. The question I'm asking is, does he still do that? Does God still violate the laws of nature to heal someone? Let's get back to the story of Claire. So we got people complaining, leaving the church because the condition this woman is in. How could we be expected to tolerate that? My friend, the pastor, trying to love her well, eventually this army nurse, God bless her, gets through to this woman, and Claire gets cleaned up and disappears. She comes back to that church about a year later, dressed normally and in her right mind, and she tells people um, that after that day she took a shower, something changed in her, and she began to at least be interested in getting help. And she had some benefits that she was entitled to. And so she started pursuing those that week. She wound up in a residential care facility and was there for a number of months and was finally able to get the treatment that she needed so she was able to step back into some semblance of a normal life. What's a miracle? A miracle 
is when God violates the laws of nature to accomplish something, right? What are the natural laws that govern human interaction with someone like Claire? You know, I, I think sadly, like what human nature is about is what that family with young kids chose to do. That's all of us, right? Um, that is the predictable laws of nature at work. What is natural is to pull away from those who have problems that become disruptive to us. That is what is natural. That is the human laws of nature. When someone has an issue that makes us feel unsafe or uncomfortable, the laws of nature dictate that we protect ourselves and for God's sakes protect the children from the discomfort and withdraw. It makes total natural sense to leave the crazy lady who smells. What's unnatural? What makes no sense? is to fight for her to have a place to sit, even though it costs you. What's unnatural is to try to talk to her every single week for eight months and not get frustrated. What's unnatural is to have the insight to see that the trauma that she has experienced was preventing her from feeling safe enough to take off her layers of soiled clothing and get cleaned up. So what I think our Jesus did is I think he led these people to violate the laws of nature and look this woman in the eye and love her selflessly. And somehow that act broke through the cloud of her mental illness and allowed her to get her life back. My friends, if that is not a miracle, I don't know what is. It's the miracle of selfless love, and it defies explanation. It is unnatural. Does God still do miracles? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I would say this, though. I, I don't know if there's a bigger miracle than when he inspires humans who have no reason to do this, to love selflessly those that we have every reason to avoid. I, like, I just, when you think about the experience, expenditure of God's power, it probably takes less power for God to straighten broken legs that have never walked than it takes for God to inspire someone in their heart to love a person they have reason to recoil from, right? Do you want to see a miracle? Yes, I do, sure. That'd be great. I think, though, God is more interested in our willingness to be a miracle than he is in our desire to see a miracle. I was thinking about this. It's October of 2022, right? So if we just think of this year, 2022, like if you were to add up, I bet in the year 2022, God has received uh, maybe billions of prayers from humans asking him to do something miraculous. Um, and that's not bad. I, I have prayed. I've prayed for miraculous healing uh, for someone I love. You know, I, it's not bad to pray for a miraculous healing. I just, I wonder about this though. How many prayer requests has he gotten from people looking for an opportunity to be the miracle of selfless love to someone who doesn't deserve it, 
who we would naturally recoil from. I bet he's gotten that prayer a lot less than the other prayer. It's impossible to know, right? I think the more interesting question than does he do miracles is why does he do miracles? And I think in Acts 3, you see this. I think you see this with the story of Claire. It's the same reason. God violates the laws of nature sometimes so that people on the outside can experience his love for the first time. And whether it's the beggar outside the temple or Claire in the back row of the church, God intervenes and he does something so unnatural and unexpected so that that person could experience his love for the first time. So how do we apply Acts 3? I don't know. Um, Let's do some miracles, right? Let's do some miracles. Let's be a miracle. Let us look to offer someone the most unnatural thing on earth, selfless love. How do we do it? Um, I, you know... Not to be too blunt and obvious, but maybe there's a two-step process in this story. Step one, look into the eyes of someone who's chronically overlooked. Like make some eye contact, some human contact with a person that most people never see. Uh, That's probably step one in the miracle process. Are you looking at anyone who's unseen by others? Are you getting in contact with them in some way. Here's step two, love them in the name of Jesus. That's what Peter was doing. He's like, I didn't heal him. Jesus healed him. I just looked at him. I just talked to him. I just gave Jesus the opportunity to do the thing. So love him in a way that's not about you. Love him as long as it takes for eight months, every week, maybe longer. I think that's the two-step process of miracles that I see here. Step three maybe would be, I go back and repeat step one and two. Um, I think this is how we get to violate the laws of nature with our Heavenly Father. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. I see what you did there, Jonathan. It's very cute. Uh, You kind of spun it. I thought you were going to tell us how to actually do a miracle where we'd violate the physical laws of nature like Peter and John got to do. Uh, And maybe God has that for you. I don't know. I just think Jesus, though, is more interested in his people learning to daily violate the laws of human nature than learning to violate the laws of physical nature. You know, I don't, I'm not sure he's really as interested in that as he is in teaching us this way of life where we're constantly doing the opposite of what feels so natural to us humans. Withdraw and avoid, protect, hang on to what we have. He says, there's another way. It's just, it's just the opposite. It's going to be unnatural. But if you could embrace it, and if you could walk in it faithfully, over the course of our lives, I'm convinced we will see things as equally mind-blowing and unexplainable as what happened with Claire's story. May we be the miracles we were created to be. Lord, we come to you in faith, trusting that even though what you ask of us is so unnatural to us, this idea of selfless love for those who don't deserve it, for those we have reason to, to withdraw from, it's so unnatural, Lord. And we confess apart from your spirit and apart from the strength that you give us, we're not capable of that. It is you in us that is capable of that. So God, may we depend on you fully like Peter and John did. And may we love 
in the ways that you love us, selflessly, miraculously. In Jesus' name, amen.